Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. Brought to you by Active Iron on News Talk. A new survey out today by HelloFresh has revealed that two thirds of people believe the way to someone's heart is very simply through their their stomach. So what better thing to chat about this Valentine's Day than aphrodisiacs? Uh, We're going to be talking to food historian and lecturer at uh, the University College Cork, Regina Sexton, in just a few moments' time. But I want to hear from people um, about this today. You can get in touch with us on WhatsApp. It's 087-1400-106. Regina is with us on the line. Regina... How exactly do aphrodisiacs work? Uh, good afternoon, uh, Andrea, and happy Valentine's Day. Same so to I yourself. Hope you, uh, I hope I'll be able to answer this um, this pressing question. And um, I've been doing some work with uh, uh, HelloFresh, and we were looking because they they they're they're a food company, and we've been looking at uh, food in the context of Valentine's Day and the connection with aphrodisiacs. So, how do they work? That is the question. So I suppose how we understand them is that I, I think certain foods have the reputation as uh, promoting, I suppose, feelings of desire um, and love uh, in almost a, maybe a psychological way that maybe would lead on to other amorous activities. So that's the basic, I suppose, uh, premise of an aphrodisiac. Yeah. Um, but I suppose like all good things, uh, it's a bit more complex than that. And I think if, if any food uh, was scientifically proven um, to uh, promote, I suppose, ultimately kind of um, good sexual um, activity, well, then I think it would have been identified and commoditized since markets long before now. So I suppose that the, the good news is that certain foods do promote good feelings, but maybe the bad news is that there isn't any single food that does all that an aphrodisiac. Yeah. Is. So if you sit down and, you know, uh, eat a couple of bars of chocolate or, uh, you know, lay into a load of oysters later tonight, it's not going to arouse sexual like instinct to- beyond... Uh, no, I, I mean this has occupied um, this has occupied humans since the beginning of time, obviously. Um, and I think we come to aphrodisiacs more from, in, in, in I think in a present day context, we come to it more from sort of the commercial perspective, and we kind of have things like chocolate and maybe strawberries and things like oysters. You know that we 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 think or we they have this reputation as promoting these feelings of love mm. that will go somewhere else. Um, and and they don't. I mean, I think it's more so. Uh, it's also maybe the placebo effect that surrounds them, and the fact that they have been suggested to us, or that we've been told that they will do these things if we consume them. Um, but what's interesting about them, though, is that like this this idea of aphrodisiacs has consumed people for for, for since, since I suppose the beginning of time, really. Uh, and if you go back in time, just looking at how the story develops, it's really, really a very interesting one. Um, and we just have, I suppose, kind of the remnants or the legacy of that today, like in, in the example of chocolate or, or oysters, for instance. Yeah. Well, is, is, is it that we see, you know, like a lot of movies and, and films, Regina, you usually tend to see oysters probably being associated with romance or there's, you know, kind of a sense of... Um, luxury nearly you know about it in the scene there's yeah. there's always that sort of desirable 
effect or something when, when you see, you know, oysters are kind of used in that sort of ro- romantic way, but do they actually have any effect? Um, well, uh, they, well, okay, so I suppose there's a few things that you can say about the story of, of oysters. It's like, if you look, at there was a lot of activity about uh, um, aphrodisiacs in the ancient world. And then there was an awful lot of activity as well in the 16th and 17th centuries, thinking about um, aphrodisiacs and what they might be. Um, and from that, um, you, you can see oysters would probably be, belong in a category of aphrodisiacs because there were various different categories of aphrodisiacs. Um, and all of these categories could be separate, but also they have the, the, they have the potential to kind of overlap. So if you look at things like how they were thinking about uh, aphrodisiacs, in the past is that they were not necessarily just tied to um, lust and sexual activity, but they were also tied to um, how food could be nutritious that would lead to sexual activity. But ultimately, at the end point, was that this would lead to conception and having babies. So that's the way that they were thinking about okay. it. Oy- oysters in that context were a category of foods that were looked upon as being um, good for all of this activity and this category, which we no longer think about in a present day context, but the oyster kind of preserves some of it, is this idea that foods that were salty um, were good for the body and they were good for various different flows within the body. And those flows could either be um, blood, because the flow of blood and the good flow of blood was linked to virility, health, and of course, you know then what comes next. It's it's the it's the next step yeah. onwards. Okay. So so, so when we good, good, good with, in that respect. Yeah. So with the salt, I suppose, in in mind, is that how you know, in terms of the, the history of this topic with chocolate, is that how chocolate has sort of been associated now, cho- with romance? Yeah, chocolate is a really interesting one because chocolate goes into the category of two things. And other foods that were looked upon as being aphrodisiacs were spices hot things, but also this overlaps with another category of aphrodisiacs and they would be sort of exotic foods that were coming in from elsewhere, particularly into Europe. So chocolate is native to the Americas, comes into Europe as a result of colonisation and so on. Um, but the way that we are, we chocolate today and the one that is linked to romances and chocolates uh, and chocolate bars and all sorts of stuff, but in its early life, chocolate was consumed as a drink. It wasn't a solid, it was a liquid. So when people were consuming chocolate in its early life in Europe, it was as a chocolate drink, mm. but a chocolate drink that was heavily spiced. And spices have the reputation as been hot. And so what they were looking for were hot flu- foods that promoted all sorts of bodily activities that would ultimately lead to sexual activity and then procreation and so on. Are there certain so spices though, Regina, that are more associated with that than others? Just the hot ones? Uh, yeah, things like um, what they loved were things like um, uh, gallon gale. Uh, that's kind of related to, to ginger, even though that's a kind of a tuber and so on. Um, but things like uh, cinnamon and um, um, uh, cinnamon and nutmeg and all of these kind of heating spices. So when you look at what we might kind of class as being love potions, if you look at early recipes for chocolate drinks, they have a whole load of these spices incorporated into the liquid chocolate and also it needs to be sweetened, of course, which is another ingredient from the new world. So that idea of mixing exoticness and hotness for spices 
uh, was ideal, yeah. I suppose. There'll be a there'll be a, a rush in uh, in in sales, <laughs> cinnamon and nutmeg, uh, Regina. I'd say later this afternoon. What about turmeric? I always heard that was one of the main ones. Uh, no. I suppose it goes into the idea of being belonging to the spice family, I suppose. And, we, you know, turmeric is kind of a fashionable fatty spice at the moment because of its anti-inflammatory properties. So it's kind of, I suppose, in people's consciousness at the moment. But I think it's just the family of spices generally will have this reputation as being exotic, elite, heating, and they kind of they then be good for the activity that follows. But then, of course, the other thing I suppose we don't think about is that there is a whole family of um, of food items that were very commonplace that we have we have to hand, you know, uh, everyday items that were looked upon as being um, food ingredients or food items that had high aphrodisiac properties as well. And these are surprising ones that we don't remember now because I suppose they're too commonplace or banal. But big ones that people um, spoke about in the past were things like carrots, uh, parsnips. Parsnips? Uh, and aubergines. And this, again, is another part of the story of Aphrodisiac. Yeah, exactly. That is. <laughs> many ingredients that suggested um, parts of the body um, were isolated as being um, right. of this category. So the carrots, the parsnips, parsnips that are there you go. large. Uh, the aubergine and so on. Um, the oyster has that characteristic as well because it will resemble bodily parts. And then the other one that has fallen from favour, like the salty foods, we don't remember more, you know, shellfish and things like that, except the oyster, of course, which has survived. But the other body of foods, which we'd probably kind of go, oh no, um, are foods that provoked wind or flatulence. And these were looked upon as being very useful to um, the males rather than the females because they needed um, a source of wind okay. to um, support um, sexual activity. Right. Like. Well, people so might want nice. to stay away from those ones this evening. Just finally, Regina, fact or fiction? What about strawberries? Oh, well, I think maybe. We're, what are we? We're in uh, February. Strawberries are not in season. They look lovely. They have this swollen red uh, appearance and profile. But I would keep strawberries for the summertime as maybe being a kind of a love food for summertime as opposed to being a love time for spring. Well, there you go. This is why everybody, well, every 66% of the population think that the way to your heart is through your stomach. Regina Sexton, food historian and lecturer at University College Cork. Regina, that was very interesting. Thanks a million for joining us here on the programme today. Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. Weekdays at midday. Brought to you by Active Iron on News Talk.